You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. Let's get ready to get our hands dirty in the soil. This Arizona Saturday morning, it's 8 o'clock. It's the outdoor living hour. It's the first Saturday of the month, so we're joined by Julie Murphy of the Farm Bureau. We're going to talk about what's in harvest here in Arizona and where you, the consumer, can find those local uh, grown fruits, vegetables, beef. In particular today, we'll talk carrots, but I want to back up. Uh, talk, uh, you know, you, you, you sit down in church and you always got the, the bulletin before you get into the sermon. <laughs> exactly. We, we have some bulletins here. <laughs> your your last newsletter was very interesting. I we we've had a very busy 2018 and I have not hardly heard any news or kept up with anything. It was through your mailer that I found out Amazon purchased whole paychecks. I mean, whole foods. Correct. And then we um thank you uh Romy and it's good to be with you again this morning on the radio. We uh reached out to one of our ranchers, who's also our new president for Arizona Farm Bureau, Stephanie Smallhouse, and asked her take of Amazon purchasing Whole Foods, and she gave some great insights. Of course, if you're a member, you've probably already read the article, and uh, it just tells us what's going on and what that might mean for our farmers and ranchers, because it it's kind of telling us that Amazon's even going to help Whole Foods have a lower price point with their food, which in many ways for our pocketbooks is good. But it can also make it a little bit tougher for our farmers and ranchers because they're what we call in the industry input costs. Sometimes they keep going up, and yet these food prices keep going down, which is good for you and I. But there's kind of that symbiotic balance between the market and what's going on. I loved her line about, you know what, if it doesn't make sense anymore, we're going to stop. We're not going to stop treating the animals any different. We're just not going to do all the paperwork and processing. It needs to be, quote, organic. You know, this is we, – we were already organic anyway. We just had all this extra paperwork, and it comes with extra high dollar. If it doesn't make sense, we're not going to do it. Exactly. It has to meet their ability to make a reasonable profit. Uh, we always talk about sustainability in agriculture and all the farmers I've known for years and years are very sustainable, but one of the most important sustainability issues has to be, can I make a living and can I make a profit? And anybody can be a member of the Farm Bureau. You don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be a rancher. If you eat food, I recommend becoming a member of the Farm Bureau. Thank you. And yes, uh, for 50, $59 a year, even if I'm not an Aggie, and I'm not. Our family's no longer in farming. We retired in 2005. But I can join the Farm Bureau and take advantage of a lot of uh, member benefits and then also keep abreast of some of these insider stories that a lot of times the media is not even talking about it, hence the article that you're refer- referring to, Romy, about uh, what does it mean with Amazon buying Whole Foods. And you also have a lot of member benefits. I was quickly browsing through your 15% off at Boot Barn, Knott's Berry Farm theme ticket uh, passes along with Legoland. And if you are a farmer, you've got great things like $2,500 off Caterpillar. There you equipment. go. So it's you do a great job of covering a wide variety and serving all all your customers, which is like I say, any, anybody that likes to sit down at the end of the day and serve their family a warm meal. We have fun at the Farm Bureau, and our members are hanging out with us and having fun, too. We have a high, very high retention rate, and we have 24,000 members. 
Believe it or not, the majority of those are non-Aggies or non-farmers and ranchers, but they want to support, um, you know, people like Will Rousseau of Rousseau Farming Company and other of other farmers and ranchers. Um, I remember one of our comments that came from Stephanie Smallhouse, Arizona Farm Bureau's president. She said, if you care about farming, you should be a member. If you care about local food, you should be a member. And uh, it truly is a place to hang out if you celebrate agriculture in Arizona. If you have a question or would like to join the conversation, it's one 767 4348 one rosie you or you can uh, text questions to 411-923. And I said we've been busy. Y'all have been busy, too. Food prices are down 6.5%. Correct. Um, we do a market basket every quarter. And we do it mainly to see what the trend is. Uh, we always emphasize this is non-scientific. We're not having U of A or ASU do the study. It's Arizona Farm Bureau. But it allows us to see if we're trending upward in prices, if we're in an inflationary period, or if we're trending down. Well, lately, the last two or three market baskets, we've been down in price. So, again, that's good for your par- pocketbook, my pocketbook. And it really allows us to kind of assess because we always price the same 16 market baskets, and that's a variety of our vegetables, fruits. A lot of our basic food items, milk, uh, you know, your your dairy, your fruits and vegetables. Right now, fruits and vegetables are a good deal because there's an abundance of it, and 90-plus percent of them are coming out of Yuma and Maricopa County, uh, again, thanks to families like the Rousseaus. So we're, we're doing a lot of fruits and vegetables, and uh, it's a good time to buy them because it's winter. Bacon was down a whole buck a nine, buckle eight a pound. And who doesn't like bacon? <laughs> so we stock up, stock up on the bacon. Now you did have uh, potatoes, variety of different meat cuts: chuck, roast, ham. Uh, we already mentioned bacon, chicken, milk, eggs, cheese. I didn't see. I didn't see carrots in here, but you have the American salad mix. As carrot, carrots would be included in that, right? It would. Shame on us, though. <laughs> we need to discuss this with Will, Will Russo for sure. And we brought Will Russo of Russo Family Farms. Welcome to the broadcast today. Uh, we've picked carrots as our topic. It's in harvest right now in Arizona. And what uh, what better way to cover the topic than bring somebody in who knows a little bit about growing them? Well, thank you, Romy. Glad to be here. Tell us, let's back up before we get to the carrots that are coming out of the ground today. Talk about the hundred and how many years history that leading up behind that? So my family uh, on both sides got here in the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, my paternal great-grandfather came to Phoenix literally in a covered wagon, uh, ended up being able to buy a little land, and, and that is the basis for what uh, I do today. Uh, the first three generations of that family were in the cattle business, but then they built the I-10 freeway through uh, my dad's feedlot, uh, we lived on 79th Avenue in McDowell, and that made me go off into row crop farming. And then I started raising produce, and and today we grow uh, thousands of acres of uh, produce as well as some hay and uh, grain. And in addition to carrots, you all also grow broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, uh, celery, onions, uh, sweet corn, watermelons. That the area you're in, you can pretty much be growing and harvesting something yeah, nearly year-round. We start planting things, including carrots, in the beginning to the middle of August. Uh, 
and then we start harvesting those crops first uh, of November, uh, more or less, and then we're done planting usually the winter vegetable stuff by uh, mid-January, and then uh, wrap up that harvest in in April. But yeah, we're we're working from we're, we never stop working because in the little bit of time that we're not planting and or harvesting, we're preparing the ground for the next crop. And how many acres of carrots do y'all? About fifteen hundred. I've planted carrots in our garden. How how long does that take you to put all those little tiny seeds on fifteen hundred acres? Well, just acres? It, it'd be better if you left it to the professionals. Uh, <laughs> that would be the word to the wise today. But we obviously use mechanical planters and and sprinklers and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. No, we're we're harvesting about eighty acres of carrots a week right now. We just started the first of January, so we're really just hitting our stride. Uh, our packing shed is in Tolleson, and we're, we're running two shifts a day, six days a week on the packing shed. The carrot market is actually, it, it must not be part of the market basket because the carrot market's one of the things that is decent. Uh, some of the weather they had back in Georgia and then up in uh, Canada, in the Quebec area of Canada, has uh, cost those producers some of their crops. And sad to say, that's the way our business works. If everybody makes a bountiful crop, it's not worth anything. Uh, but when somebody else uh, takes a shot with the weather, then it's our turn in the barrel. So that's where we're at today. Backing up to the first garden, I remember planting at my parents' house. And we put carrots in. We, you know, you see the the wonderful green stalk that mm-hmm. comes out of it, and you think, oh, great, it's got to be time. And you pull it out, and it's got like, you know, it. You can tell your your shovel really only got about two inches, and right. it's got all these gnarly little root bugs. How deep do you guys? How do you prep your soil to get a sure. 12, 15 inch carrot? Yeah, we try to keep our our, our dirt real mellow because uh, obviously you want it to be soft, if you will, because uh, a crooked, uh, short, uh, stubby. A uh, gnarly-looking carrot is not what the consumer wants. That's uh, that's your cattle feed crop. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it it so that we we try to keep our we grow it on light, well-drained soils, uh, mostly out on the west side around Waddell, uh, some in Tolleson, um, and uh, and so yeah, it's just it, and the the most amazing part is the machine that digs it. Uh, it's a huge machine. And it it actually goes underneath those carrots, so its its plows are running 16 to 18 inches down in the ground, and there it's heaving the the bed of carrots at the same time these belts are pulling on the tops, and it lifts it up and and it, it's you have you have to see it to believe it, but uh, but it, it's an incredible uh, machine, and then that goes into our packing shed, and then the rest of it is done with machines and some hand labor over the years we've added uh, we've automated some of that i wouldn't call it robots but it's but it's more machines that sort and pack the carrots but there's still a fair amount of hand labor we're in the outdoor living hour with the arizona farm bureau and will russo of russo family farms here at rosie on the house we'll be uh, right back after this if you'd like to join the conversation it's one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight we also have susan and glendale who text in wants to know what uh, your opinion of vertical farming is i don't know that uh, that would be a, a great application for carrots but we'll talk about that in a little bit on the other side of the break Carrots are divine, you get a dozen for a dime, it's magic. 
they fry a song begins they roast and i hear violins it's magic a little later in this program in our 10 o'clock hour we talk about dealing with pests one of which are uh, rabbits how do you how do you keep rabbits out of 800 acres of carrots <laughs> Uh, the answer is you don't. Uh, if uh, if they want to get in there, they they get in there. But uh, we 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 don't do anything to exclude them. Um, we actually have some fairly strict uh, food safety parameters that we have to follow, and so our harvest crews are trained that if they see an area in the field that's been disturbed by rabbits, coyotes, any of the other things that are out there in the rural areas, uh, they don't harvest that area. We skip around it. And then we have some inspection areas as it goes through the packing plant that if something like that does come uh, come in inadvertently, then we're able to shut down. But in the, in the few times that happens, then we have to clean everything out of the plant because we can't have any kind of contamination and uh, wash it down and then start back up again. But, but they, the good news is that there's not that many rabbits. So the, uh, the thousand acres of carrots or whatever, they, they, they don't make much of a dent in that. Now, how many carrots will you get per acre? So we, we plant two different types. We plant for what we call cello carrots, which is the whole carrot that you buy in a cellophane bag. That's where it gets its name. Uh, we plant that at about five to 600,000 seeds per acre. And on a good field, that will make uh, a yield after about 180 days in the ground of um, approximately uh, 35 to 40,000 pounds packed out that we sell uh, to the acre of carrots. Now, then we also so plant, sorry, go ahead. 35 to 40,000 pounds per acre. And a carrot. It probably takes three or four carrots to weigh a pound. One pound bag is is between four to six carrots. Yeah. How, how big is this machine again? I you huge. said you'd have to see it to believe it. It's I huge. need to come see this. It's huge. Yeah. You could hire Bugs Bunny. Yeah. He'd love it there. <laughs> then we also grow uh, different varieties in different populations for baby carrots, and we want those to be long and slender because then we cut those into the pieces and and peel them. Uh, but that we plant a million and a half seeds to the acre there, same 160 to 180 days. We sell, we pack out or utilize less pounds per acre because you're peeling it and cutting it, so you have some loss. But we're seeing 20 to 25,000 pounds to the acre of packed out or utilized product. And all that loss, I mean, you still repurpose that, recycle it, compost yeah. it. Yeah, we, we either sell it. Uh, our, our preferred course is to sell it to another carrot producer that's over in California. He has a value-added program where he makes juice, he makes dehydrated carrot powder. He So if he utilizes it, that's our highest and best use for it. We also then sell it to local dairies, and they feed it to cows. So it doesn't go to waste. So we're eating a lot of carrots all over the country thanks to the Russos. Yes. Including the cows, yeah. if you have to sell it yeah. there. No orange milk. No orange milk, right. <laughs> you had mentioned something just about the, the trucking industry and how it relates to farming and the weather that's going on in the Gulf and along the East Coast. And what did you say? Uh, uh, a truck into... So, so it's just with the with the government mandating the elect, electronic data logging for over-the-road truckers, it's, it's constricted the amount of units that are available. That and the tough conditions with the 
terrible winter they're having back on the East Coast, uh, trucking rates have gone up dramatically. Uh, a truck to Boston this time of year or New York would normally be three to four thousand dollars a load, and we're having to pay as high as eleven to twelve thousand dollars a load to get it back to Boston. So, um, depending on a commodity, uh, most of our carrots stay, if not local, at least regional. But then on some of our other commodities, the bulk of that goes back to the East Coast to some established customers back there. Man, 13. Yeah. So if they're having a Farm Bureau segment in New York right now, they're not talking about prices down 6.5%. <laughs> no, probably not there. It is regional. The other reason why you often see uh, the fluctuations you do, and a lot of times the prices being down, is because we have one of the most competitive grocery markets in the country. Uh, that's from our gross, grocer association telling us that. And so because of that, you and I, in our pocketbooks, it's going to be good. But the competitive market makes it certainly challenging for our grocery stores also. I never really thought about that because yes. we do have Safeway. Got them all. Bashes. Yeah. Albertsons, Fries, Sprouts, Whole Foods. And, and you go back to Louisiana, you got Piggly Wigglies or Kroger's. Maybe a market basket in the small, right. real small markets. Right. So uh, interesting. Well, think about it. Walmart wasn't even hardly in the grocery part of the business I Walmart 10, 15 now. years ago. And they're one of our bigger customers now uh, is Walmart and, and a good customer. They, they buy a ton of things. Costco, uh, a lot of our watermelons, uh, all those aforementioned outlets take our watermelons, but Costco just moves a ocean of watermelons. Uh, so it, it is an incredibly competitive market, which is good frankly, for me as a producer and also for us as consumers. And really, you can say that you satisfy the local market, the regional market, and the national market mm -hmm. because yeah. you're selling into some of our local, like Bashes, we call them the local gro grocer. Yeah. And you also, I don't know if you do now, but you guys used to have a um, farm stand. We, we run a, a little farmer's market out at okay. our cooler on the west side at Cerville and, and Olive in the month of June. That's where we pack our watermelons, but we bring sweet corn over there and we offer sweet corn and watermelons. And then the, my grower uh, likes to grow some exotic things. So we have some bell peppers, we have chilies. We'll roast the, the chilies for people, uh, have tomatoes that we get from like McClendon. Uh, so yeah, we just have a, a, a little thing. Don't, it's not a focus, but it's just kind of something fun to do. We did receive a text question earlier that I, I meant to cover last break before we forget. Vertical gardening, does it have an application? And in, in, for the, the listener, there's tower gardens you can sure. buy that mm -hmm. you could put. They come with little pods that you put your uh, herbs. We see a lot of herbs, yeah. a lot of lettuces. Put your seedlings in on whatever crop, yeah. It has a little I, pump that comes up on top and the water trickles sure. down to a basin and it just recycles. 
And I, I think that kind of farming, obviously for a, a homeowner or somebody that's going to use that for their own personal consumption or maybe a, them and a few friends or, or, and or family, uh, then that, that's apropos. Uh, it's just the, the quantities. Again, there's over 4 million people in, in greater Maricopa County now, and the concept of feeding that many people, uh, much less the rest of the country, uh, which is kind of what my myself and my industry, my colleagues are doing. Uh, I think is it, it take a lot of a lot of vertical farming. A lot of I, there's a there's a, a containers, ocean ocean containers that are being converted into farming units. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's just it's very it's very fresh, obviously, but it's very high cost per pound of production and your yield per acre probably isn't 30,000 pounds no (laughs) you're you're probably because they're vertical you're probably getting your yield per acre it's just there's not very many acres in a in a you know urban setting that you can do that on so uh again i'm not denigrating it i think it it works for some people but as far as the concept of that feeding large quantities of people i don't see it and about 15% of your harvest is organic, the rest is conventional. What's the difference between uh, organic and conventional? Sure. Our, our cultural practices, uh, we can't use commercial fertilizers, uh, so we're using different fertilizers that are derived naturally. Um, I won't go into the description of what they are, but uh, but it, you, can, you can imagine. Uh, Animal-based, I'll, I'll say that. Um, and then we can't use uh, any insecticides or herbicides. There are some organic uh, insecticides. Uh, the chrysanthemum flower has some natural pesticide uh, or, or bug-killing uh, characteristics. So we, we use a derivative of a chrysanthemum flower that's as a natural insecticide. Um, uh, some bacteria, uh, there's some fungal-based uh, materials that work on uh, worms, uh, but it's pretty limited. And then, and then, th- so those are the big items areas that differs. Uh, the other one is no herbicide. So uh, our herbicide is a is a hoe. You literally are out there on your knees pulling them out or hoeing them out. So that that's why our production costs differ between commodities. But it's at least 35, if not 50 or 60 percent more per acre to grow organic. And yet we make the same, if not less, units per acre on those different commodities. Uh, and you're saying more expensive, 30 to 50 to 60 percent more expensive right. to, to grow. To, to grow per acre and, and with the same number of units derived or less to put against the growing costs. And right now it's 15%, but you see growth in organic. Sure. Uh, we, we're, we wouldn't be very smart if we didn't respond to our consumer, and our consumer is asking for that. Uh, we'd, we'd always grown conventional carrots, and just here in the last – we're now in the second year, we changed our packing shed uh, and brought in some of our some more organic ground into our stable. So now we're growing organic carrots, and that was at the request of some of our major receivers or retailers. But you also were saying it's more volatile in terms of yeah. The, it, the, why there there just there seems to be to us a real hardcore group of organic consumers that they have to have organic, and and they'll pay about anything to get it. Um, and so if there's a slight 
undersupply, then the market really skyrockets. Conversely, if there's a slight oversupply, then I think it spills over, the, the production spills over into the not as hardcore organic consumers, and uh, and then the market gets real soft. We, we see that. Produce is the kind of, I think, the most perfect example of supply and demand uh, economics that there is. We don't have any storage. I mean, we have to harvest it. We have very small window. We pick it. We pack it. It has to go somewhere because we can, we have to do that again the next day. So we're we're at the mercy of the supply chain, and and that can be good, uh, or it could be bad like it is now. We're with the really good weather we've had here. Uh, we have an abundance of of produce both here, Yuma, Imperial Valley, um, and the weather back east is terrible. So. People are not in the mindset that they want fresh vegetables and, and salads and whatnot. Uh, they're going for the uh, hungry man soup. And we're at the mercy of good growers like you because there's not a lot of people farming today. No, no. <laughs> and trying to yeah. get into farming. So yeah, Russo the, family, stay in the farming. We will. <laughs> we will. As long as we can afford it. Yes. <laughs> it isn't easy. Now, why a carrot? Well, what, what's the nutritional value of rabbit food. <laughs> um, I, I told my wife last night, she asked me what I was going to say about it. And I, I was going to say that I told her I was going to say, uh, carrots are sweet as mother's love. So, uh, that's the, uh, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> we, we actually, I started growing carrots because that was one of the first opportunities that I found as I got involved in produce growing, to be honest about it. It wasn't any high-minded, uh, uh, you know, champion any particular commodity. Uh, carrots uh, are just, they're really good to clean up uh, ground and kind of get it in good shape. Again, we talked earlier about the tilth of the soil and keeping it loose. Uh, so carrots make an excellent rotational crop. Um, but they, they are, you know, you think about the produce aisle, uh, some color on there is always nice. There's lots of pretty green stuff. But then, you know, you have our carrots, and they're the bright orange, the bell peppers that are red uh, or yellow. Those become very popular. So I think it, it's, it's just been a staple commodity for a long time, and I think deservedly so. What's your favorite thing to way to prepare and eat? Raw, raw, dipped in ranch, dipped in <laughs> ranch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. With a broccoli just, on the side, <laughs> just like the rest of folks. Yeah, I actually like cauliflower better with ranch than broccoli, but uh, yeah. <laughs> High in vitamin A, and, right? And they're sturdy. If anyone, if I had an opportunity to go through your plant, and it's amazing how effectively you move those carrots and get them ready for. A, myself the consumer right. and they're just they're sturdy they're manageable and you can good handle shelf them. life good shelf life yeah yeah so no it, it's it's a good commodity uh very competitive uh we're a what i'd call a large grower of carrots but there's two two big companies over in california that grow exponentially more acres than i do and they're very good at it so it it's it's tough to compete i we'd never be able to compete nationally uh we kind of have to rely on the local or regional market for carrots and on fill your plate there's a multitude of recipes that include russo carrots so and by the way those recipes are provided by our farmers and ranchers fillyourplate.org it's a website there's on a farm you're put together full of uh, recipes for consumers along with a list of farmers market. I was actually saving that for the next break, but 
<laughs> why, why, why hold out? If you go there and you click on the farmer's market, you can sort by zip code, by region. I've got the entire state zoomed out, and I can't even count how many different ones from Flagstaff down to the south side of Tucson you can find a local farmer's market. And it's mobile friendly. So if I'm in <laughs> Prescott on the weekend and I want to visit the farmer's market before I go on my hike, I can just go to fillyourplate.org on my smartphone and I can find the farmer's markets that are open. And it's kind of fun. And, and we do that because it's another way for us to promote our farmers and ranchers because you can also buy directly from some of our farmers. Our two most searched areas are beef and wine, of course, and we've got about 20, 25 beef producers that will sell directly. And then you go into a grocery store in the, on the corner, and you can get your Russo carrots and your leafy greens and have a salad and a steak, and you're set. You're good. You're making me hungry. <laughs> I know. I'm kind of hungry, too. <laughs> going down to Dad's this weekend, and that's we're going to grill some steaks. So we'll get our uh, salad. and I'm going to put you on the spot now. <laughs> well, where does he get his steak? <laughs> where does he, Dad get his steak? Well, we just go right into the grocery store because 53% of our beef in the meat market is coming from our Arizona ranchers. But I have purchased directly, and one of my favorites is um, Arizona Legacy Beef. They have a Criollo beef. It's a heritage breed that comes from Spain. And not that I am the sophisticated connoisseur of beef, but I have actually fallen in love with that one, and that's on fill your plate, by the way. But um, all of our beef here in Arizona is good, and... I'm not too. I'm not partial on that because we really produce a high quality beef in Arizona. Any of our ranchers, I've been to the their ranches and I've seen it for myself. The way they take care of their cattle, their well, certifications, what they do. You'll have to bring that Legacy Farms in when we cover beef. I will. I, I can't remember if it's May or June. One of the whatever National Dairy Month is, we're covering dairy, but. That next adjacent month is, is beef. I will seek out Danny and Casey Tomerlin because they're the ones that are doing the Criollo beef, and they'll give you all sorts of stories. I have not heard of oh, that. Oh, so good. And if he comes, he's got to bring some. Oh, that's what we'll do. We will do that. I had to make promise. that a requirement. I was expecting a bag of Russo carrots this morning. The listeners can hear as much. Bad. Our bad. We didn't have that one in the bag. We're talking with the Arizona Farm Bureau here at Rosie on the House. The final segment coming up next. We were talking during the break about farm, you need land, and a lot of the farmers, their, their most profitable crops are developers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the most profitable crop is a, is a red tile roof. <laughs> it's the last crop, but it, uh, yeah, it's the most profitable crop. And a lot of uh, Arizona's grown up over the top of farm fields. What does it take to establish a new i mean you you, you leave 10 you know, right now y'all are on the 303 if you drive north on there past you have the prison there's a couple new warehouses that have popped up mm-hmm. pebble creeks out to the side you can see jets coming in from luke air force mm-hmm. base with the landing strip and there's a couple dairies right there underneath those grove trees but all that farmland on both sides all the way up is a, the lion's share of it is y'all's we we have a good share of that yes uh-huh that's that's one of our 
basis of operation. We also farm on the Salt River Pima Indian Reservation uh, east of Scottsdale Community College. You can't see our farm from the 101, but you can see farms just like ours. And what ha- who owns that land? It's just different entities. There's some we lease from some developers. Uh, the Mormon Church is a longtime landowner out there that we lease a fair amount of property from. Uh, they're the ultimate long-term landholders. They uh, they buy properties, either operate them, them themselves or lease them to farmers like me. And then when the time is right, they sell that and go buy more. And as the developments happen, what does it take to push the farming out? How far? When you drive that I-10 out to Quartzsite, you yeah, a little bit of land there, but there, you There's don't no have water. the infrastructure. You don't have the canals. Yeah. You don't have the wells. <laughs> no, my so my family started on Fifty First and Thomas. That was the first farm that my uh, great grandfather bought. Uh, that's that was one of the first parcels that John Long bought in 1956 for Maryvale. So all that, all all of Phoenix essentially, certainly below the canals. Uh, or south of the canals, used to be some of the best irrigated farmland in the world, uh, and now it's houses. But with that, the, the usage on that land of, of the water is remains consistent. So it's not like you can go out further west or further south or anywhere out from the, from the city core and have new land because there's no more water. And, and, you know, that's that's okay. I mean, uh, Phoenix is a great place to be. Uh, I wouldn't want to live here uh, if there was only uh, 250,000 people like there was when I was a kid. But uh, but it's, it's a lot more fun now, and there's a lot more people to buy my carrots now. So uh, that's the that's the trade-off. But, uh, but I don't know. I, so I, I, can't, I can't answer that. I, I hope that our policymakers uh, will uh, realize the value that agriculture provides and continue to try and work to keep the resources available for agriculturalists to continue to feed our country. I would certainly hate to see our food production, whether it's beef, dairy, or produce, uh, us be reliant on another country. Oh, amen. And <laughs> that, that, that would hurt your organic market yes, really yes, bad. Yes. We're, we're also told by those that attempt to look at the crystal ball, that a lot of our greatest opportunities in agriculture are on the tribal lands. And we've got plenty of tribal lands, and a lot of those tribal lands have the water. Hence, one of the reasons why you lease from one of the Mm -hmm. tribes with your farming. So we still have more opportunity than we think we do. It it, it always kind of tugs at the heart when we see some farmland go into red-tiled roofed homes. But uh, we still have a lot of opportunity in agriculture here in Arizona. And you had mentioned something interesting about what it takes to bring a crop organic to bring a, a, like you a have piece to, of ground. Yeah, you have to let it sit for how long? It it, it any any land can't have any uh, inorganic compounds used on it for at least three years. So if it we either our original organic farm that we've now had for sixteen or seventeen years 
was a tract of tribal land that for various reasons nobody had farmed for about seven or eight years. So we leased that from the community, brought it in, uh, and so it was instantly organic. It was also a struggle because the weed pressure on it and the and the was terrible. Where's but, the Roundup? Let's yeah, clean this. No, no, no Roundup, no Roundup. Remember, it's just right. hose. Yeah. So uh, and we're actually transitioning some of our long-term, really good farmland now to uh, for further organic. So uh, it's just it's driven by supply and demand, but. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it it that's why it it organic costs more, and really it has to because it costs us a fair bit more to produce it that way. Azfb.org. You can go learn more about the Arizona Farm Bureau. Become a member. It was fifty nine dollars a year for consumers to become a member, and that fund goes help support your lobbying, the farm bureau industry as a whole, and you know, your your local Arizona food market. Right, and it's uh, it you become part of a family in reality, and certainly you get the benefits, some monetary benefits, especially discounts. But one of the neat things too, when you become part of the Farm Bureau family, is you're tied into families like the Rousseaus. I love to tell the story of Burl Rousseau, who is Will's aunt, mm-hmm. and she was very active in the Farm Bureau in her heyday uh, because the family, the Rousseau family, were so heavily involved in all types of agriculture like they are now. Well, she was the state chair of the Women's Leadership Committee. And um, while she came from the farming background, the farm family, we just have a lot of pretty exciting things that we do. And it makes me think I can't help but use a metaphor. Uh, they They were and are deeply embedded in the Arizona Farm Bureau. And it is truly a a farm family of uh, mm-hmm. so many of our families here with, as it relates to Arizona Farm Bureau. And you can get a pound of freshly cut and clean Russo Farms. That you, you guys sound like you're just about in every grocery store. We are, yes. We, we're, we're fortunate in that uh, the both the retailers and obviously their consumers uh, realize the value of local uh, it's it's less carbon f- footprint, uh, less carbon impact on our on our uh, ecology, and and it's uh, it's also a better value. Uh, we uh, all of our employees live here, shop here, um, you know, spend spend their paychecks here. So uh, yeah, we're 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 fortunate in that. Uh, yeah, there's really no place that you go that won't have our products. And for all of 2018 and the first Saturday of each month, we'll be talking about what is locally in harvest here in Arizona. Next month, we talk garlic. We need to find a garlic grower. Uh, I might have to take a trip over to Yuma and do that one live from uh, from that, that area. The following month in May, or excuse me, April is eggs. Uh, beef is May. So then June must be National Dairy Month because we'll be covering dairy, and we've got uh, the cars, and we've got the rovies that we'll bring in for that. We'll be talking melons. We're talking corn into August. September, we bring in chilies. October, pork. November is our only uh, non-edible. This is cotton, but we'll talk about table settings and where to find local cotton. We have the Yuma cotton that's so uh, high, whatever you call it, high... High strength, high, high, sh- high length. Uh, yeah, Pima yes. cotton Pima con- is uh, 
world-renowned. And then, of course, in December, eggnog. And we've got to bring mm-hmm. the Dan Heisen Nursery, yes. or da- Dan Heisen Dairy back in for their locally made eggnog. It's the Arizona Farm Bureau and Russo Family Farms. Thank you all for joining us this Saturday morning. Thank you, Roman. Pleasure. Thanks.